I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. It goes without saying, but there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about American democracy right now. Those concerns are being brought into sharper focus by the primary races happening across the country over the next few weeks. On Tuesday, consequential primary races took place in five states, including in the battlegrounds of Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Already, the results of those races are foreshadowing how contentious the rest of the midterm elections will be. They're also raising questions about what voters think of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, as well as questions like, will House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Democrats still hold the House? How strong is Donald Trump's enduring power? And what does the legacy of the January 6th attack on the Capitol mean now? Today on It's All Political on Fifth Emission, host Joe Garofoli is joined by New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. They're the authors of the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. It's a bestseller that takes an in-depth look at the political turmoil of recent years. There are a lot of explosive details from their exhaustive reporting that you won't want to miss in this conversation. In particular, they shine a spotlight on the major California politicians who are shaping national politics right now. You'll hear about Vice President and Bay Area darling Kamala Harris and her rocky first two years in the office, as well as her beef with Congresswoman Karen Bass, who was once being seriously considered for the Veep spot. They also detail what's next for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the White House path that Governor Gavin Newsom is now certainly not maybe eyeing. Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns were the reporters behind the shocking tape that was released last month in which House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy suggested that President Trump should resign after January 6th. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should resign. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. So you know this conversation is going to be good. Here's Chronicle senior political writer and host of It's All Political on Fifth Emission, Joe Garofoli, and Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, authors of This Will Not Pass. Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, welcome to It's All Political on Fifth Emission. Now, there are tons of compelling stories and storylines in your new bestseller, This Will Not Pass, involving... Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham. But we're going to focus on some Californians in your book who are also major national players, starting with our vice president, uh, uh, Oakland-born and Berkeley-raised Kamala Harris. One of the uh, the lines that really jumped out to me, it's someone who known and followed her for the last 20-odd years, is when you ask if uh, if Joe Biden isn't going to be – isn't going to run in 2024 to defend democracy, you guys write – quote, few Democrats had confidence that it was Kamala Harris. And, quote, in several candid conversations, Harris admitted to confidence that she simply did not know Washington all that well. She had only arrived there after the 2016 election, and the insular nature of the White House had made it difficult for her to make new friends and figure out how the nation's capital really worked. It was a sobering acknowledgement of her own limitations, from a politician not overly given to self-criticism. If Harris had a path to victory, then perhaps admitting she had a problem was a useful first step. Guys, 
what happened to Kamala Harris from the from the day that she uh, launched her presidential campaign before twenty thousand people here in Oakland to this point? I think Jonathan, you were out there at that. Uh, I was covered out of it. Yeah, yeah, I think I remember seeing you there. Yeah. Look, I think that this is one of the threads in the book that will be somewhat more familiar actually to, to Californians than to uh, the national uh, audience uh, as a whole. Uh, this question of uh, just how formidable the vice president is as a campaigner, just how uh, sharp her political instincts are, how confident she is uh, of her own abilities, and uh, how engaged she is uh, in in sort of government uh, broadly. Look, Jonathan and I covered her campaign in the Democratic primary. Uh, we wrote a story uh, around Thanksgiving of uh, 2019 uh, about how her the wheels had really just come off uh, the campaign. In good faith, I cannot tell you, my supporters and volunteers, that I have a path forward if I don't believe I do. And a lot of the themes that uh, we sort of drew out in that story about uh, internal tension, indecisiveness at the top, uncertainty about uh, what uh, then-Senator Harris really wanted to stand for, what she wanted her message to be, uh, those have persisted for, you know, uh, going on two and a half uh, additional years now and into the vice presidency. I think there was a lot of hope among Democrats that once she was in the vice presidency, she would be able to uh, define that role for herself in the way that uh, Joe Biden did uh, when he was vice president, right? You take a couple of uh, big issues, you own them, uh, you invite uh, uh, some criticism, you just handle it and you just sort of mature uh, as a politician. And the portfolio that she has developed for herself has obviously not done that for her. She was given uh, the job of uh, handling Central America by uh, the president. She has held that at arm's length. The President's chief of staff thought that was a big mistake. Uh, we report in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, she asked for the voting rights portfolio. She never really grabbed it uh, with both hands. Uh, she has, you know, not really engaged the Senate in the way I think she would have been expected to when she asked uh, for that job. And look, by the time we get to the fall, we're gathering material uh, on Vice President uh, Harris over the course of 2021, and it's uh, pretty clear pretty soon that this is not like a deep uh, love connection between her uh, and, and Joe Biden, that there's a lot of friction in the administration. But it's not until the fall of 21 that we really start hearing her acknowledge that uh, for herself. And that's the piece that you just read. Is that because the – is it the portfolio is too big and diverse and vast or is it because she's only been there, as you, as you allude to, a couple of years and – she wasn't a, you know, she was uh, always in law enforcement. She wasn't, quote unquote, a politician before that. Well, I think that the, the law enforcement issue is a, is a really good snapshot of the basic attentions here, that the policy issues that she's most familiar with are actually super uh, urgent today, right, related to uh, criminal justice, fighting violent crime, uh, police reform. But she's all, she, she has had sort of a tortured relationship with her own stance on that issue. And once you get outside – uh, the roles that she has held for the overwhelming majority of her career, right, a DA, uh, attorney general, her deep policy expertise starts to thin out pretty quickly, right, that uh, she doesn't have a foreign policy background. We report in the book that she asked for or her staff asked for her to uh, own the, the Nordic countries in Europe as a sort of starter assignment diplomatically in the White House, just uh, totally smacked that down and uh, handed her instead this much more politically charged portfolio of the Northern Triangle. And Joe, the, it's something of a return to the past. I think the last few VPs have been a bit of a break from tradition. If you think about uh, Dick Cheney, Joe Biden, and Mike Pence, um, they were all sort of complimenting the president in ways that were different than traditional, which is to, to say, 
oftentimes they had more experience uh, than the presidents that they were serving. And with Biden and Kamala Harris, it's it's a return to a day when the vice president was younger, more junior, something of an understudy. But we we spent a lot of time covering the vice president in this book. And Alex and I have been covering her since she was the attorney general of California. In fact, I think the first time I met her was in this city uh, at Slanted Door down on the ferry building mm. when she was still the AG. And um, it's been striking to watch her because she's always had this enormous promise to her career, even before she got to the Senate. Um, and I think she got thrust into this job as VP at a really tumultuous time in American politics with, with no clear mission. There's a, a scene in the book where Biden is doing a town hall with, I think it's Jake Tapper uh, at CNN. And Tapper asked Biden, you know, what, what's the vice president's role going to be? What, what are her issues going to be? And Biden kind of dodges the question because they hadn't quite figured it out yet. Well, let's let's get a little bit into the how she was chosen, which is is, is great political intrigue. Uh, the, the Biden team acknowledged that she was clearly the option who, as you write, clear, she was clearly the option who served Biden's near-term political interests most comprehensively, end quote. But behind the scenes, the word was that some of uh, Harris's former uh, campaign uh, California-based consultants who are located not far from where we're recording this we're dropping uh, oppo research on the on I don't the, know who you can have in mind. Uh, yes, I, I, well, we'll yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't want another angry call from that person uh, <laughs> uh, for her rivals uh, for the VP spot. Tell us about that. What's what's going on behind the scenes here? So from the start of the VP process, there's a big constituency within Biden's orbit that thinks she's the obvious person for the job. But there are a lot of people close to Biden who have real uh, doubts about her, including uh, Mrs. Biden, who says uh, at one point in the process, you know, thinking back to that uh, brutal, brutal first uh, debate in the Democratic uh, primary race, you know, there are millions of people in this country. Why do we have to choose the one uh, who attacked Joe? You also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So within the Biden campaign, the process unfolds in many respects uh, almost as a process of elimination, right? You start out with this big group uh, of candidates, you know, 10 or 12 people who are seriously considered, and you whittle it down, disqualifying people who are, frankly, one by one judged like riskier than Kamala Harris, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually, uh, that's mostly how uh, you get to her. The other side of the process is, you know, people who are uh, supportive of Harris sort of quietly trying to point out uh, why all those other women are riskier than Kamala Harris. And, you know, we don't uh, sort of uh, uh, point fingers or, or brandish a smoking gun uh, in the book. But, you know, we do report that several of the other women who were under consideration, uh, including uh, Susan Rice and Karen Bass had real uh, questions about whether the negative information that was suddenly popping up about them on social media or uh, in regional newspapers or in Washington newspapers, uh, whether that was being uh, orchestrated by people uh, supportive of Vice President Harris. And, you know, I, I don't know that everything was sort of placed there for a reason, but it certainly had the effect in many cases uh, of reminding Biden of the risks involved in choosing other people. And Biden uh, at one point asked a, you know, an advisor to his campaign, you know, it, it, is it really true that the Harris people are doing this, that they're go go, you know, going after uh, people like Karen Bass or Val Demings? And you know, the person he asked uh, that question uh, sort of assured him that you know, 
it may be that some of her allies are doing that, but we have no reason to believe it's her. And that was a big that was a big help to her. And, right? and Joe, I would just say that this could be a case of good old fashioned East Coast bias or perhaps uh, <laughs> East Coast <laughs> ignorance. But what was striking reporting out this book and just ha- having covered it at the time was the shock that Joe Biden and his lieutenants had about just how rough those Californians play. Oh, yes, um, especially in this city and uh, in California. Because and, yes, it's a one-party state, yeah. so all the fights are within the, uh, uh, the Democratic coalition. And they're not really about policy. They're more about personalities. And so they're inherently that they're inherently nastier. And I think Biden would remark, what, what's happening in California? They There's some real pushback on, on Senator Harris out there. And a little follow-up to that, you know, after Kamala Harris became vice president, Governor Gavin Newsom, of course, gets to pick her replacement yeah. for the final two years of her term. And you guys uh, report that uh, Harris called Newsom uh, to sort of uh, offer her input. And you write, quote, Newsom had the distinct impression that there was one applicant Harris did not want to see in the upper chamber. That candidate, the governor told people, was Karen Bass. What happened between the vice president and... And, uh, and and Karen Bass, who is now a front writer to be the mayor of Los Angeles, the nation's second largest city. This is an episode, the one you just described, where you really show that Harris uh, can can uh, sort of wield a knife herself, right? That uh, she and her advisors were really stung during the vice presidential search process when Karen Bass, who is not even on the original list of candidates, sort mm-hmm. of roars out of nowhere with the backing of uh, Chris Dodd, uh, one of Biden's uh, close friends and former uh, Senate colleagues, to, to be a very seriously considered. Uh, and Harris and her people considered that a really, really serious betrayal uh, by Bass. She's a, you know, a black woman from her home state uh, who was suddenly getting all the support from the people Jonathan just uh, alluded to. You know, and she uh, clearly uh, held on to that, that when uh, this is after the November election, when uh, Governor Newsom is deciding who to put in that seat, uh, Vice President-elect Harris calls him up and, and talks over a number of the uh, options for the seat. She doesn't back anyone herself because, you know, there's no there's no upside in, in sort of right, uh, spending right. your capital that way. Uh, but after the call was over, Newsom told people, you know, it's pretty clear who she doesn't want. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I nerded out uh, at one sort of behind-the-scenes California in your book. And that is billionaire venture capitalist Reed Hoffman. For those who don't know who Reed Hoffman is, he was uh, early on in PayPal. He's a co-founder of LinkedIn. And not only does uh, uh, does he fund a lot of research for Democrats, he seems to have a direct line to Nancy Pelosi. He gave her a heads up that something bad may happen on January 6th. Tell us a little bit about the role that, uh, that Hoffman plays in Democratic politics and how he kind of for, forewarned uh, of the insurrection, if you will. Well, this is a really uh, powerful moment in the summer of 2020. Hoffman is, you know, one of the most important benefactors of uh, uh, Democratic candidates and causes. His center of gravity is enormous uh, in Democratic politics, and particularly uh, on the West Coast. And so he does have a direct line to the speaker. And in the summer of 2020, uh, he and uh, some of his advisors are briefing her and some of her advisors about research they've done about the possibility of a contested election. The fact that uh, if Trump uh, didn't concede or attempted to thwart the transfer of power. Uh, what are the choke points for that? And he, you know, uh, points out to her that that is a moment when uh, the Republicans could try to make mischief or worse uh, in thwarting the certification of the election, and briefs her on what her options would be uh, in that situation. That you know, if Republicans are to go down a really extreme path using sort of far out methods to obstruct the transfer of power, you have your own far out methods, right? You could decline to seat. 
Republican members of Congress uh, in the House, that you could decline to seat people uh, who are opposing the transfer of power, uh, or you could decline to bring the House into session, that if Republicans are going to try to uh, block the certification of the election, uh, you could do something to not even give them the chance to do that. And Nancy Pelosi's uh, reaction in that moment, sort of vintage Pelosi, uh, she doesn't quite say, I hear you. She doesn't quite say, you know, uh, that's good advice. I'm going to take it under consideration. But she says, you know, listen, I'm a grandma and I know that uh, when the kid reaches their hand into the cookie jar, uh, you need to slam it down, which is a pretty uh, uh, brutal uh, grandmothering. Uh, oh, she's, I, she's a tough grandma. Yeah. Yeah. Those come, poor grandkids, man. Yeah, they just want a cookie and they get in their hands. Yes. Pelosi, went, in this very studio, I once asked her, I said, who do you, who do you look up to? You, who do you get advice from this point? She says, well, um, the Lord. Well, we digress there. Let's, but let's talk about that. That is a very Nancy Pelosi (laughs) answer. She is, uh, this is part of the reason why she and Biden get along. In fact, we we have a whole section of the book on this. They're so similar in their politics and their background, sort of, you know, pre-baby boom, uh, East Coast Catholic families and their sensibilities on politics and on the sort of uh, nature of of public life are so, so similar. And I think their views of contemporary democratic politics are also uh, very similar. And they're, they're both fairly uh, pragmatic. I, what does Biden call her? His, his Catholic, Catholic sister? sister. Catholic, Catholic, Catholic sister. sister. Yes, yes. Yeah. More with Joe Garofoli and New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, authors of This Will Not Pass, after the break. Will House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Democrats be able to hold the House? He's already won three elections in his four years as governor of California. What does Gavin Newsom want to do next? Joe, Jonathan, and Alex will discuss. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. We're back with It's All Political on Fifth Emission. In this next part of their conversation, host Joe Garofoli and authors Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns discuss what's next for major California politicians like Pelosi and Newsom. Here's Joe Garofoli. Let's talk about Pelosi because the, the big question here in California, I know obviously she has national implications yes. uh, if she should do, we know what she does next, but here she has local implications. That's a, that's a house seat. And so you write that even her husband, the wealthy financier Paul Pelosi has said he doesn't know when she'll quit. Now, obviously, she's on the ballot again this year, and there's no way that she would hint that she's leaving because, you know, she loses power, and and, and she, more important, yeah. perhaps she can't raise money. Um, but there are passages in this book where she expresses hints that uh, this may be it, and among it is her frustration with progressives. After she won the speakership in 2020, you write, quote, one ally recalls, Pelosi expressing fatigue and frustration with unusual vehemence that day, discussing her political future in a way she rarely did around colleagues. Quote, you couldn't pay me a billion dollars to run for speaker again. End quote, she said, according to this person. Where's where is Pelosi at right now? So uh, talking to Democrats who know Nancy Pelosi well. There was speculation about whether she'd leave Congress early, perhaps take an ambassadorship. Is she going to run for re-election? I think all that's now water under the bridge. She's obviously running for re-election, and she's going to serve through um, this year. But if you ask anybody, is she going to hand over the gavel to Kevin McCarthy uh, in the House of Representatives and making him Speaker of the House? It's really hard to envision her doing that. When we interviewed the Speaker in her office, um, we brought up, 
the relationship between her and McCarthy because, you know, we pointed out you're both Californians. So certainly there's some state level or, you know, parochial issues that you guys would naturally work on together on behalf of, of the state, perhaps some water projects. And if looks could kill, <laughs> we would not have left that office alive. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Her, her glare was like, it basically was suggesting, are you effing kidding me? Um, of course, I'm not breaking bread with Kevin McCarthy. But my takeaway from that answer was it's really hard to see, Joe, her, her sticking around long enough to, to give Kevin McCarthy the gavel if the GOP does take the House. Now, I think if Democrats hold on to the House, it's a very different question. But you know, right now, it seems unlikely that that will happen, uh, lock and change between now and the election. But boy, I just I have a hard time seeing her do that with somebody that she really has uh very little to know. So she she resigns. We'll, we'll go McLaughlin uh, group uh, style questioning yeah. here. What, do, what does Nancy Pelosi do? Jonathan Martin. If Democrats <laughs> lose the House, I think the most likely scenario is that she would resign. Yes. She would resign. Okay. And free up the seat. California Governor Gavin Newsom makes some appearances in the book. Uh, he's got a, an easy path to reelection this year, very likely. But now, in case Biden doesn't run in 2024, and as you said, uh, Kamala Harris is her own signs uh, of trouble. Yeah. Is Gavin Newsom warming up in the bullpen for 2024? There's a lot against that. They share, you know, the, the same donors, the same advisors, uh, same donor base. What, what do you think? Look, I think that one of the benefits to being the uh, governor of California is that you don't need to do a whole lot of warming up in the bullpen <laughs> in order for people to take you very, very seriously as a presidential candidate, right? You're not talking about the governor, you know, the obscure governor of a mid-sized state who would like to uh, punch above his weight. Uh, he's a very, very... Uh, well-known national figure as governors go. I do think the home state uh, politics of running against Harris uh, would be challenging for him. I think the personal politics, uh, just the duration of their relationship would make it hard uh, to run against her. But look, in a scenario where Biden isn't running again, uh, either because of age or because of unpopularity or both, uh, I don't think that we can take it as a given that Vice President Harris uh, would emerge as a strong frontrunner. She's by every indication less popular today uh, than her running mate. Yeah. Um, and so to me, you know, one of the questions, and it's something that people uh, actually in the White House raised with us during the reporting process is, can we take it as a given that she runs, right? Yeah. In a universe where wow. uh, Biden doesn't run and she is the sort of even less popular sidekick to the president who uh, isn't even putting up a fight in 24. Um, do you end up with a, a sort of conversation in democratic politics that says, you know, nothing against uh, President Biden or Vice President Harris, but we really need to turn the page sort of more comprehensively and we need to yeah. look outside of Washington because uh, things have been a mess here for a couple of years. If it gets to that point, I think he's obviously very well positioned. Joe, I will just say we're both uh, uh, bred uh, on the East Coast, but I will turn the gun uh, on ourselves <laughs> uh, at this point. It is remarkable and perhaps to ask East Coast bias that the governor of the biggest state in America who after this November will have won three elections in four years uh, statewide as governor to that state, who previously was lieutenant governor and before that mayor of one of the country's great cities and was a path uh, pathbreaking mayor uh, given what he did on same-sex marriage, is not such an obvious topic of conversation uh, in the next presidential race is really surprising. I just find that remarkable. To me, uh, it, it just it's obvious that he's uh, a contender, is going to be formidable uh, if he does run. We spoke to a very prominent California Democrat recently, and we said, is Gavin Newsom going to run for president? And this Democrat cut us off and said, no, no, 
He is running for president. Oh, it's not is. It's not a future tense. It's a present tense. You, he is running for president. If you listen to him now, you will hear more mentions of Florida and Texas uh, and, and what other states are doing. Uh, he's, he's so read up on Ron DeSantis yeah. and what's happening in Florida. Right. He can smell that matchup from a, a mile away. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Florida, if you want to compare Florida to California, has had a 53% higher death rate than the state of California, 33% higher case rate than the state of California, and their economy has done worse. He knows what's happening on Fox News, and he, he can speak at great length about what the California story is versus the Florida story. Oh, yes, and, he, is, what, he is telling it constantly. Yes, absolutely. What, what you heard him say recently, yes. sort of whacking uh, Democrats in D.C. for not doing more to protect abortion rights. You know, where the hell have they been? Which uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi did not seem to appreciate <laughs> in her, in her response. That. Look, I think that's exactly where the space you're going to need to be in if you're going to run in 24 as someone who is not Biden or Harris, right? Somebody who is uh, by no means uh, a disloyal a member of the party uh, or, uh, you know, seen as as a sort of ideological apostate, but somebody who can sort of run against the, frankly, like pretty shaky performance of your own party from a place that's not Washington. It reminded me a lot, by the way, that moment on abortion rights that Newsom had recently of Howard Dean at the outset of the 2004 campaign saying, what, what I want to know is where the hell my party is on the Iraq war at the very start of 03 at a DNC meeting in Washington. And it sort of electrified the room and said, right. oh my gosh, this governor of Vermont is sort of saying what everybody in the party thinks but doesn't want to say out loud. I think it was a very similar moment with Newsom here on abortion rights of he's basically where the party base is, but he's just saying it in a really uh, powerful and affirmative way. I want to talk about another Californian, uh, Bakersfield's own uh, Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> uh, we, I thought we, you never asked. Yeah, I know, I know. But we want, you, a lot of the stuff's out there. I want to go to, uh, you know, the day that... Uh, you you uh, dropped the the uh, recording of him uh, asking Trump to resign yeah. after he denied it. I was at the California Republican Party convention there, uh, and you know, to a to a person, they all backed him. They uh, you know, but he's a Californian. They gave him a standing ovation the next yeah. day when he spoke. Could McCarthy become speaker? And you you sort of allude to this in the book. Would Democrats, if they're not in the majority, vote against him? So can he become Speaker of the House? Yes, absolutely. He can become Speaker of the House. Is it a foregone conclusion that he's the Speaker in a Republican majority? No, it's not. And mm-hmm. I think that that's an extraordinary thing uh, on its own, that the uh, you know sort of long-serving minority leader who doesn't uh, have, at least uh, from material that's been publicly reported, any kind of crippling uh, uh, well-known scandals, uh, you know, will they take over the Speakership? Usually that's a, a fait accompli at this point. Um, but, you know, it's a fractious a Republican conference. He's got uh, critics on the far right. He's got critics uh, closer to the political center. And he's got no particularly deep well of support uh, or, or sort of uh, deep bonds of affection across the party. He's a sort of leader of convenience who raises a lot of money and uh, does his best to be all things to all what, people. I mean, a dozen years ago when he when he entered leadership, I went down to Bakersfield, hung out with him. He did a profile of him and he seemed like a, you know, moderate Republican, mm-hmm. sort of tech-friendly. He would bring yeah. uh, Republicans back to Famous Silicon life, Valley. Right? Uh, what happened to that Kevin McCarthy? Well, he could be that guy again tomorrow if that's what uh, political circumstances and incentives required of him. He's a sort of, in so many ways, the total archetype of the grasping, climbing politician who sort of, what do I need to be? 
uh, tomorrow. And it's one of the things that we really capture in the book is in the days after January 6th. Uh, he goes from being you know, sternly critical uh, of Donald Trump to sort of fudging it in the middle somewhere to opposing for photos at Mar-a-Lago, but still trying to keep his distance from uh, the insurrection itself and, and saying there should be a, a bipartisan independent commission uh, to what he is today, right? Which is back at, as, as a, a total lackey yeah. uh, for Trump's political operation. And does that mean that he's going to stay there? Not necessarily, but I think it's an extraordinary place where we find ourselves in this country that it's very, very possible, even likely, uh, that the next Speaker of the House will be functionally serving at the pleasure of the former president. And, and can I just say, Joe, I, I don't just say this because we want more excuses to come back to California, although I'll plead guilty to that as well. But I, it's hard to remember a sort of moment where California was so pregnant with political possibility. You think about Gavin Newsom maybe running for president, Kamala Harris, certainly second in command, could be the nominee in 24, uh, you know, uh, totally plausible. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. What is her future? Kevin McCarthy uh, could soon become the Speaker of the House. And we haven't even mentioned this remarkable mayor's race in a city down the road called Los Angeles, which we don't talk about too much here, I know, yeah. in San Francisco. And then the senior senator in California, uh, what is her future? Uh, I've seen some reporting recently in the, yes. in the Chronicle about that. You yes. Take all that together. And what a fascinating time in it California is. politics. It is. Absolutely. Well, we, we have to talk uh, about Trump. Uh, yeah. and, and, and the day we're recording this, there are a number of key primaries uh, going on um, in Pennsylvania, in particular my home state. Uh, one out of every three uh, ads mentions Trump's name. What would it take to, for Trump to lose his grip on the party at this point? Well, Pennsylvania is sort of an interesting case study in how he could lose his uh, grip on the party. It's just not losing his grip in the way that uh, I think Democrats and a lot of moderate Republicans would like uh, him to. When he was president, Donald Trump did a pretty good job of picking and choosing winners in primaries sort of by uh, the wave of his hand, right? And a lot of the endorsements he made were foregone conclusions uh, anyway. But when he waded into really com uh, contested races, yeah. you know, his – his uh, uh, endorsement sort of had a nuclear grade effect. And that's not really what we're seeing now, right? It definitely moves the needle uh, in Republican primaries. But you do see, you know, some candidates sort of going their own way, not being sort of full MAGA and surviving in these primaries. And then you see candidates who are even more extreme uh, than Donald Trump and his chosen candidates like doing just fine because the movement has in some ways uh, sort of transcended the man uh, now. And that's potentially a challenge for him and for the Republican Party and the political system as a whole is, you know, if this already really destabilizing movement sort of becomes this brush fire that even Trump himself can't control, uh, that's dangerous in a different way. And that's so if, if uh, Ron DeSantis were to run, and you, you guys think Trump is running in 2024? I think we can argue it either way. I think today it's probably more likely that he is than he's not. Well, the you close the book and 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 uh, with the, sort of an ominous tone. Um, sort of. Uh, sort of. <laughs> very. <laughs> a very ominous yeah. tone. Uh, you say, quote, the system had wobbled and creaked but it had not failed, yet it had not thrived either. Mm. I mean, this country has been through civil war, through assassinations of presidents, civil rights leaders. Where where does the country go from here? Alex, where, where? – Look, I mean, I think that it's it's very hard living through a time like this one and not just the Trump experience, but but COVID and, and, and so much else. Uh, it's hard to live through that and feel like it's not the worst thing that's ever happened uh, to the country, right? People, there's been such a dark a few years, January 6th and the aftermath. And I think what makes it feel even bleaker is that there's not the sort of 
you know, uh, World War II is over and now we're roaring out of it into the, you know, booming 50s and uh, 60s, right? That there is this sense that, you know, we're sort of through the worst of COVID. Uh, we were supposed to have normalcy by now, but like things are still pretty lousy, right? So I think the country is just in a really a downbeat place and it's hard to sort of pivot out of this sort of strongman experience uh, and into feeling sort of confident and assured in the future of American democracy when, you know, like you can't find baby formula on the shelves, right? Having said all that, the country's been through really, really bad stuff uh, before, like stuff that is much worse than uh, the experience of the last few years that makes January 6th look uh, like a drop in the bucket, right? And I do think that, you know, for all the bleakness of the book, uh, I do think that there's like a pretty, you know, I mean, it, it might feel strange to put it this way, but there is a good news story here, right? And a country was tested by, you know, a totally out of control uh, president, uh, an incompetent government during a once in a century a global health crisis, the total collapse of the American economy, a mass unemployment, and here we are, right? And things aren't great, but they're also not catastrophic, right? And a lot of other systems, including our own at different points in our history, would have just uh, crumbled like, uh, you know, uh, would have just completely crumbled under those kind of pressures, and it didn't. And that actually is good. News. Most of the planes landed uh, on time and unscathed, <laughs> uh, paying no attention to those that actually uh, dipped in the bay on the way in. Um, no, look, I mean, I, I, it, it's sort of hard to find much in the way of good news uh, uh, or hope in the short term because obviously there's a reason why, Joe, the book is called This Will Not Pass because we're still living uh, this this uh, this moment. We're still living through uh, this sort of threat to American democracy and the kind of tribalism that is pervading uh, our, our politics is obviously, if anything, getting worse. Yeah, it, it, it's it's – Sobering. It's there's not a happy ending there. This is not Hollywood, but it's an important story to tell. And I think we're really proud of the fact that we were reported the heck out of this book from inside both parties. It, it, it's based upon a lot of information uh, that we spent two years uh, cultivating, and, and the result is this book. And so I think your your listeners will really appreciate it, especially those uh, who are California supremacists, because man, there's a lot of Californians <laughs> in there. Two of uh, the nation's best political journalists. Jonathan Martin, Alex Burns, thank you for being here on All Political on Fifth and Mission. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. That was Joe Garofoli, host of It's All Political on Fifth and Mission, in conversation with New York Times reporters Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns. Martin and Burns are authors of the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Find Joe's politics coverage at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. For more on Kamala Harris as vice president, you might want to check out Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris? That's a Webby Award-winning six-part podcast series that covers her life and career leading up to the 2020 election. Joe reported and co-hosted it with Chronicle Washington correspondent Tal Copen, and you can listen to it wherever you get Fifth and Mission. Search for Chronicled, Who is Kamala Harris? Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode and to you for listening.